Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Welcome to And The Update Is. I am your host, Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Hung Shiok is stepping down from his role as CEO of HYBE, formerly known as Big Hit Entertainment. HYBE America will now be operated under two branches of leadership between CEO Lenzo Yoon and CEO Scooter Braun. American rap star NLE Choppa, also known as Bryson Potts, has been sued for copyright infringement by fellow rapper Kilo I. Lee over his track Make Em Say, which was released in August of 2020. Reservoir has acquired the catalog of legendary rock producer Tom Warman. The deal includes 100% of Warman's producer rights for all of his works, including the number one Billboard Hot 100 hit Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison. As we've all been impatiently awaiting updates regarding Britney Spears, Bessemer Trust has been asked to resign as co-conservator of Britney Spears' estate. Britney Spears has also been invited to testify in front of Congress by Matt Gaetz and other GOP Congress members. The Small Business Administration has delivered $1 billion in shuttered venue grants. Without surprise, Instagram is leaning into the video world similarly to competitors TikTok and YouTube by allowing users to post full screen videos in their feeds. Curb Records has sued Tennessee governor over anti-trans signage law. The indie label says the law spreads the state's preferred message of fear and intolerance towards transgender people and falsely portrays them as a threat. The new California budget includes $150 million for independent music venues. Motown Records has hired Brian Nolan as both executive vice president of the Motown label and executive vice president of marketing. Wow, this is amazing. Yale Drama School goes tuition free thanks to David Geffen's $150 million gift. Luis Vasquez becomes the youngest soloist to top tropical airplay charts with his song Too Fun. TikTok has extended their maximum video length to three minutes. Mass Appeal has hired Jessica Rivera and Jenya Meggs to lead music content. Jenny Pfaff has been promoted to Senior Vice President, 
Head of Global Strategic Integration and Operations at Warner Chapel Music. Christian Johnson has been promoted to Senior Director of A&R at Hypnosis Songs Group, the U.S. entity previously known as Big Deal Group before Hypnosis acquired it last year. B2B music streaming technology company Tuned Global has signed a deal with social media app Leica to provide the technology to integrate an immersive music streaming service within its app. Warner Music UK's Atlantic Records has entered into a joint venture with Ireland-based Trusted Entertainment, home to rap, hip-hop, and drill artists. Dan Goldberg, Senior Vice President at Warner Music Artist Services, is exiting the company after 12 years. Primary Wave Music announced on June 23rd that they have acquired Aaron Bruno's shares of Owl Nation's music publishing catalog. CSAC unveiled the winners for its 2021 Latina Music Awards, giving Sony Music Publishing and its songwriters top honors for last year's body of work. Country songwriter Jenna Paulette has signed a global publishing deal with Seagale Music. Producer and musician Sam Felt has teamed up with independent music publisher CTM Publishing BV to launch his own publishing company, Heartfelt Publishing. Victor Martinez has signed a global publishing deal with Warner Chapel Music Spain, the music publishing arm of Warner Music Group. The go-forward deal spans Martinez's full catalog. A big thank you to Haley Evans for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. Today's guest is a multi-Grammy-nominated, smash-tacular superstar songwriter-producer. If you don't think you've heard his music, guess again, because it's impossible to miss. His catalog has registered sales of hundreds of millions of records worldwide, billions and billions of streams, And although this guest has dozens of multi-platinum certifications with some of Pop's biggest stars like Justin Bieber and Mariah Carey and Usher, he is also an extraordinary artist with an extraordinary voice. From originally Connecticut, this guest is an entrepreneur who greets everyone by saying one very important phrase most of us only hear once a year. And the writer is... Happy birthday, Pooh Bear. Happy birthday. Hey man. Where did wait where did the happy birthday thing come from? You couldn't be like it's 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 very famous. Where does this happy birthday thing start? Um it really started from me being really shy and being insecure and being a weirdo and re- remembering um introducing myself to people and I wanted people to to really understand that I was weird and shy. So in my mind, I just said to say happy birthday just because I was like, you know what? If I'm going to be strange, I need to do it from the very beginning, from the introduction. And if doing that, you know, in doing that, hopefully it makes somebody else that I'm, you know, meeting comfortable enough to be themselves and not introduce, you know, me to their representative, but actually 
you know, introduced me to themselves. So me being, you know, that happy birthday was like my icebreaker, my, you know, it's like, I'm weird. And if you're weird too, it's okay to be weird. Cause I was just weird right in front of you in real time. So that it started off like that. Right. And then it evolved into a lifestyle of, you know, me feeling like really, literally my birthday is every day. And every day we wake up, you know, we have to treat it like it's our birthday and really, you know, really like live it, you know, live every day like it's our last, you know, and at the same time, you know, be able to give good energy and put that those frequencies out to the universe. And, and once a week, when I say happy birthday to somebody, it's usually somebody's actual birthday once a week. So that's like a, a fun fact. You know, it, it's cool because people are like, oh, how'd you know? I'm like, I don't know, man. And I really didn't know. It's just my greeting. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. So speaking of your birthday. Yeah. You were born in September. Yeah. Right around when I was born. We don't have to oh, go wow. through years. Well, really? I, I'm I'm only like uh, I'm I'm like six months after you. Oh. About the same age. Uh, how, many, how many how many months after me? Oh, I'm I'm April eighth. Oh yeah, April. Oh yeah. Oh man, happy birthday! Hey, happy thanks, birthday. man. Thanks, and happy birthday coming up to you, man. Thank you. Uh, um, so you're born. You're born in Connecticut. Connecticut yeah. doesn't seem like the kind of place where, you know, I mean, you know a lot. You're obviously not too far from New York and Philly, and those are, and, you know, even Boston, like some great famous musicians out of all those places. Why Connecticut? What, what are your parents musicians? Were they? No, nobody in my family. Nobody is, nobody in my family is a musician. I have one cousin that's a that's really really a lot older. He was a, a songwriter. He wrote for. Um, I don't know him. I just know he's my cousin. Um, but he was a writer. But this, he's the only person that I could really trace in my my family that was in the music business. Um, outside of that, I was definitely uh, an anomaly in the family to to do music. Um, and New Haven, Connecticut. Oh man, one of the poorest cities in America. Um, Definitely no zero opportunities in, in New Haven for for musicians. Um, so it was a blessing that a tornado came in 1989 on July 9th and destroyed the apartments that we lived in, me and my mom and my brother, and we were left homeless for a while. And um, from there, you know, the the um, we slept everywhere. Church raised money, gave us like four thousand dollars, and my mom decided that we would move to Atlanta, Georgia. And Atlanta, Georgia was like the new Mecca of the South. It was the New York of the South. And there was a bunch of kids and a bunch of, you know, artists, young artists coming out of Atlanta, like ABC and Criss Cross and a lot of kids. So moving to Atlanta was where the opportunity for me uh, came about to get into the music business for sure. Let's go back one step. You know, you were saying this tornado came and that, you know, thank God this tornado came. And that yeah. obviously says a lot about the situation you were in before for there, you know, to be appreciative of a tornado to come in and really set you on a new direction. Yeah. Um, what was it like growing up, you know, in, in you know, before the tornado? Um, before the tornado, um, my dad was there um, from my age ages zero to seven, my dad was there. And um, it was cool, you know, we were we were poor, we struggled, but I didn't really know it, you know, the, you know my, my, my mom and dad did a good job of um, keeping us, 
um, just keeping that out of our, our, our minds and us not really just knowing that we were less privileged, we were underprivileged. And it was, it was tough. When my dad was, I was in church every day. My dad was a preacher. So we were, I had to go to church every single day, even when it, you know, wasn't Sunday and I was cleaning up and every day cleaning up. And then um, my parents were kind of, they were, you know, they were, they, they were at odds with each other. They, you know, they were violent. My, my dad was, you know, unfortunately was um, abusive and, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I love him. I forgive him. But at that young age, I saw, you know, a lot of things I really shouldn't have seen. And, and so when it, my dad left, my dad got a divorce from my mom. Um, it was it was different. It was weird. But then it was like two weeks after he moved out was when the tornado came. So it was like like one thing, like my dad left. And then back then in like 89, there were no cell phones. There was no people, you know, most of people, most people didn't even have a landline, you know, so... When my dad left, he it was that was it. It was not like it wasn't like I could find him or anything. So he left. Two weeks later, the tornado came, and um, it that was like a, a really, it was it was a dark but ter- dark turning point. But for me in my life, everything that's been negative has turned into something positive. So that tornado, you know, left us homeless for a year. We slept everywhere, but you know, without that tornado, I don't know if I would be here. Or I'd probably be in jail because New Haven, you know, give you gave you two opportunities for for a man of color. You know, you go to jail or you or you or you, you die. I, you know, trying to feed your family. So that tornado was a blessing in disguise. And, and when we moved to Atlanta, I got so inspired by all the other little kids groups that you know I just started writing songs and putting together putting together groups in my neighborhood. You know, when I was eleven. That's crazy. So when you were eleven. You're in Atlanta, yep. and obviously, you know, it's funny. We were, I was just, we were just talking to T. Ron, not that long ago. Who we were talking about Criss Cross and like Criss Cross for anybody, any yeah. teenager in America saw like, oh my, you could be a superstar at like twelve. Twelve, yes. You're, you're yeah. like it was so inspiring. Even yeah. right, right now, there's no superstar that's twelve. No, there, no. I think no, I think Bieber was the last kid. I think he, he might have been the last kid superstar. You know? <laughs> yeah, like every there's just there's so much content out there, but it's hard to explain. These guys were they were superstars when they came out, and being yeah. in Atlanta and being close to them, that must have felt. Like if a big part of success is attainability and yeah. knowing that you can get there, and then then to see that, like, of course it'd be like, yeah, I want to write music yeah. for like there. Every every teenager in that's that age dressed with backwards jeans. There's yes. no question that that if you were in Atlanta, you would write music like that. Yeah, and and just be you know as as an artist like not not feel like it was an unrealistic goal just because, you know, seeing ABC, another bad creation and crisscross and seeing these kids was like, yo, it was like Lil Dave was eight years old when ABC was out and they had, and they were double, triple platinum. So it was like, they could do it. Then I could do it. It was definitely the best um, form of, best form of an example for me, um, just seeing other kids be successful. It was like, yo, they came from nothing. I'm about to do this. So, Definitely, I, I couldn't really, I couldn't really see myself being inspired like that in any other city at that young, young of an age. Just 
knowing that realistically there's a chance that I could really make it. And I didn't as a kid, but it gave me enough hope and inspiration to just keep on writing and ended up signing my first record deal when I was 12 years old, you know, to a label called Jungle Juice Records, independent label. Um, we got ripped off. We got paid. Our advance was in the form of a jean suit. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't get any money to sign. We just got like, I got one green, one green jean mm-hmm. suit and my friend got like a golden jean suit and together we look like a sprite emblem what was the name of that group young harmony mm. and my name and his name was young and my name was harmony <laughs> so how did you go from you know you moved there yeah. writing songs and performing is something of a skill set even if you're like i want to be famous or a lot of, or i want to be like them there's yeah. a difference between that and actually doing it who's yeah. teaching you You know, this is what, like, at some point, if you're getting a record deal, somebody, some adult somewhere says, hey, do you, like, you're really talented. Um, Yeah, the kids, so I went through a lot, a number, in like one year, I went through about three kid groups that I put together. And the last, um, we had a group called TWC, (laughs) Together We Chill, the most most hilarious name ever, TWC. And the parents, one of the kids' parents noticed us before rehearsing and they, they, I guess they saw a dollar sign. So they introduced, so they were like, they brought us to Keith Sweat's road manager's house, Lonnie Ferguson. And we performed for Lonnie and Louise Ferguson. And they were like, whoa, we want to manage you guys. And, but we only want you to sing old school records so they so we went so we went from like i was 11 still 11 then and singing like la 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 means i love you the delphonic singing the temptations i um just my imagination and then from there our group um we we broke up and i actually started going to middle school and at mcnair middle school where i met young another member the member that i i put into the group and then from there, it was like, you know what? It was four of us. But then when I met Young, when I met Young or Kelvin, I was like, man, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to do, I want to try something new, which is me. And then Criss Cross was two members. So I was like, once again, it was like, I'm inspired by Criss Cross. Just be two of us. And we started recording. Um, we started recording um, with a little tape. You know, back in the day, you just have like a cassette tape player with two with two sides on it. So we would put one cassette tape player on one side and another one on the other side, and we would record our vocals through a mic. Well, we would take actual headphones and invert, turn the headphone into a mic and record through the headphone ear and then take that track, take the track, switch over, make so we got two more tracks left on the on the cassette and that was like our first recordings and then then we started performing at a place called teddy's live in underground atlanta and diamonds and pearls and um that was we were really literally i was doing the choreography um i was writing the songs i was doing the engineering i was like i was cutting vocals putting together the music and then finally we we perform at this showcase called diamonds and pearls that um, ended up turning into a club called 112 back in the day. <laughs> but every mm-hmm. Thursday, Diamonds and Pearls showcases. We performed with Monica, 
um, Outkast before they got their deal, Usher before he got his deal, Goody Mob before they got their deal. Everybody performed at Diamonds and Pearls every Thursday to get there to be showcased to get a record deal. And we met a guy named Diamond, Diamond D, well, um, ended up becoming our manager from that showcase. He brought us to Jungle Juice and when we were 12, 12 and a half. And then from there, you know, we got ripped off, signed our first record deal, put out a song called She's Turning Me On at 12 years old. Damn. <laughs> I, still got, I still got little CDs of it um, back then. And um, we, from there, we decided, you know, our manager slash producer slash record label slash everything was like, you know what? We should put two more guys in the group. And that was a long time when you had... Um, Groups like Jodeci, you know, you had Boys and Men, you had these other, you know, four member groups that were really prevailing. And so we added two more members to the group and called ourselves Friction. And so, so Friction, I'm recording, I'm cutting vocals, I'm writing, doing choreography. And then we end up doing, getting a record deal with LaFace Records. And oh, wow. I turned, I turned 16 years, uh, no, 15 years old. We ended up doing a deal with LaFace and then our manager ran off with our advance ah. and um, we ended up getting dropped from the face. And um, so from there, you know, I was how still, did your, how did like, you know, going, you go to Atlanta, you want to be crisscross, you go and you start a bunch of groups. None of yeah. them are totally working out, but you're only, only 11 or 12. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, you know, if you're going to have a fallback plan, at least you can go home and you've got your mom, like literally, you know, Um, you know, you go, you you go to these clubs, like you were saying, you know, you're, you get a new group, you get a new deal, you get dropped, you've got people taking advantage of you, even when you're 12, which says a lot about parts of the music business and how gross it can be, you know, um, by the way, most of those people who take advantage of artists like that are not working at the level that any of the listeners here want to work at. No, no, those, no, those no, are no. you know. Yeah. Why did you not give up? And who like what did your mom think as you're going through getting record deals and all these things? She just always supported me, and she was just always there, and she always you know dropped picked me and my group members up and she was our like our taxi you know she was she drove us to sessions um drove us to shows and then my mom she just never told me that um that I couldn't do it you know I had family members telling me that I sucked and that you know I shouldn't be doing this and I was holding my other member group members back and but my mom always just was like no, you know, I'm, I'm I'm proud of you. I see you. You're really serious about this. So she just always drove us to studio sessions and shows and anything we needed. My mom was like our our personal manager. And who's telling you, know, you that you're not that you're holding your group members back? Yeah, my yeah different family. I mean, different family members that were you know people just say they were they, jealous. They just, say they, were... they just say whatever they feel. And at that, I'm gonna say honestly. When I was young, when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, I really couldn't sing that well. And I knew it, but I didn't think I sucked. And I had always had like, I always heard this little voice in my head, like even when we were homeless and we were poor and we couldn't, we didn't eat anything. I always would just hear this voice that would say, you're going to be all right. You're going to be, 
you're going to be, you know, great and don't stop. You're going to be good. And and I was, so that would be like this little voice I would hear. And um, that would keep me going. And um, I ended up, my cousin ended up discovering the groups 112 and Jagged Edge. Ah, at, Peaches and Cream. At one talent show. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, my cousin ended up, you know, managing 112. And he, when I was like 16, he was just like, you know, you could, you could make money writing songs. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah. He's like, I'm going to put you with 112. And if they, if you guys vibe with each other, then maybe they'll, they'll work with you. So I was like, cool. So I went in the studio with Deron Jones and, and Q. And um, first thing me and Deron came up with was a record called Anywhere. We could do it anywhere. And that that was like, I was in high school. Um, I had no clue of what I was doing. Um, I was, I mean, I was, I was writing, of course, always from age 12, but not in a professional setting. Like, you know, with a group, 112 was platinum already with Only You. And they had their first debut album that did, that sold, did very well with Bad Boy. So this was my first time really working with a professional group that had, you know, records sold and had a, a major label, a major deal. And um, I went in and we, Anywhere came out and it ended up going, you know, it went number one on the R&B charts. Um, we went like, I want to say it went like number two on the Hot 100. I think it peaked. But uh, I was 17. I was 16, you know, so I was in high school. I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want anybody to be like, you know, be jealous of me or treat me like, you know, I just did that's I'm a Virgo, so I'm like sensitive. So I didn't I was like, I'm just gonna keep it a secret. And um from there, 112, I built a relationship with 112 and with Duran. And also that same session we did anywhere. Um I did a record with Duran called Love is Such a Crazy Thing for Pink. Um it was on Pink's very first album. So that was like in one day. Um and it was crazy weird enough they they reached out and they're like, um, how much do we, uh, what do we send a, a check to? And I'm like, a check for what? And they're like, for, you know, for, for writing and, you know, just for contributing. And I'm just like tripping because I'm like, I didn't even know you would, I would get paid anything like that for just writing. And they they literally gave me my my first check for, for, um, for Love is Such a Crazy Thing. It was for $1,200. It's my first check. For writing, for 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 a writer, like for actually writing and 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 co-writing the record. That's crazy. Wait, so um, two questions. One is, did you end up with any publishing on it, or was it just sort of like, yeah. no, we're just no? I got publishing. I got publishing. So on that Pink. was the twelve hundred. That was my it. first my first published records. I was sixteen. It was with Pink and with one twelve. So you're you know twelve hundred bucks for. Just well, anywhere made just a lot more. Writing. Yeah, but I made I made I made a little money off of the record being on the radio or anywhere being on the radio. It was a hit. Yeah. On the radio, how so. do you how do you go how do you hide that in high school? Because okay, so just so you know, well, you know, it takes about nine nine months for ASCAP money to start coming in. Uh, so, I mean, granted, I did I co-wrote the record with them, but I didn't get a large percentage because it was like my first introduction. You know, it was my introduction into the industry, and that's just the way it goes. So, but I was able, I remember getting ASCAP checks and I didn't have a bank account. And um, I remember taking my ASCAP checks to the check cashing place <laughs> where they take out 4% of the of the check. And I didn't care because I'm like, who cares? Like 4%, I don't even know what that is. Like, I didn't even know how to do that math. I'm like, just give me cash. Like, 
I'm going to check you and give me back money and I'm going to be happy. And um, first thing I bought was a cell phone. But I still, like in high school, I still was like low key. Once I would pick me up from high school um, and some kids would see it, but then there was some, a lot of kids wouldn't. So then they, I got a bad boy jacket, the bad boy in the family. So then it was like, then a lot of people were like, well, how'd you get a bad boy, a real bad boy jacket, you know, from Puff Daddy. And um, at that time, you know, people started figuring it out a little bit, um, but my teachers were still like, you need to study, you need to do your work because only 1% of people make it in the music industry and you're not that 1%. And that's what my science teacher told me, Mr. Block told me that, you know, and at that time when he was saying it to me, I wanted to say, on, on, I wanted to say, turn on the radio right now and I, cause I knew it, I was learning what heavy rotation meant. So I knew that anywhere it was playing every hour on the hour on, and every, on every station. So I wanted to say, man, turn the radio. Like I got a, I got a hit record on the radio, but I didn't, I just, I kept it inside. And, um, yeah, I mean, how do you not say point, like, I, I make, realize. I make as much as a, as at least as much as any teacher. I probably, make. I probably at that time with having the percentage on anywhere that I've had I probably yeah I definitely was making I definitely made more than probably what teachers were making um but I'm not, I was I've never been the cocky type I've never been the one uh yeah just and even if him and he said you know those those were hurtful words by saying I'm not that one percent but it still was like mm, I got a record on the radio right now so I I think I am that one person, but I was so quiet. I was shy, man. I didn't tell anybody. And, you know, I was able to, you know, get out of, um, and this, I went to the very last day of high school and they told me, you can't graduate because I'm like, why? And like, you didn't do three ninth grade classes. And I'm like, well, as a counselor, wouldn't my counselor be the one to assign me those classes? And they're like, yeah. I was like, so was it my fault? They're like, no, it's, it's our fault, but you got to do the classes. You can't graduate. And I was like, I got literally hate. I hated school, bro. Like, I still hate school right now. But I was doing it for my mom. I was writing songs from when I was twelve years old, and then professionally, sixteen started. And um, I was like, Mom, do you feel like I graduated? And she was like, I do. And that was it. So I went to the very last day. I didn't drop out, and I was one credit shy of graduating from college prep. So they didn't even let me walk on the stage. They didn't even let me come to rehearsal. And um, I remember there was like, you got to go to summer school. And I was like, there's no way. I just did 12 years of school and I'm going to go to school in the summer. <laughs> so I went on, I had the opportunity to carry bags for 112 on tour. So I went on tour that year, um, 1998. I went on tour 112 and bad, bad boy in the family to Europe. And uh, I carried bags. I carried 112 bags and I, you know, I hung up their clothes and I was their, their personal, you know, their do boy, their assistant. And, but at the same time, I was writing records, you know, on the tour bus. So, you know, we had a chance to work on part three, you know, so I did records like Peaches and Cream and Dance With Me. And I did like 10 records on that album. And it was like, I was carrying bags and, you know, I, mean, I was doing everything. But then at night, I'd be up late at night writing records with Ron and writing songs with the guys. So it was like a, a cool opportunity to travel. I mean, I still got paid a little bit to carry bags, but I was able to to um, co-write a, a, um, a slew of big records that would change my life when I came back off tour with 112. And um, 
Peaches and Cream came out, I remember writing Peaches and Cream and being being really hungry. And, um, you know, I made some money with Anywhere. It wasn't a lot of money. And I really was, like, helping my mom out, my grandmother out a lot. So I remember just not having money and being hungry. And my me and my brother, we split a chicken sandwich from um, – El Ranchero chicken number um, number one in New York. It's this chicken chicken spot. I mean, I had like a dollar and he had like a dollar or two dollars. We had enough to buy one chicken sandwich and we split that. And um, we went to the studio and um, I remember being so prideful and they were like, are you hungry? You want anything to eat? And I was like, no, I'm okay. You know what I'm saying? But then that was the same night. That was the same in the same breath. Peaches and Cream came out, you know, and I was, and it was weird because I was literally hungry writing about Peaches and Cream. <laughs> I was literally hungry. I mean, here's like a random anecdote, but I think yeah. my first like pop single, like the first song I had that actually made it to radio was yeah. a song where we interpolated Peaches and Cream. Really? Which That's is crazy. kind of amazing. That's crest. That was really cool. Like the odds of that are really small, but just that bass line that dun dun dun. Oh, dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun it's yeah. just so good. Yeah. No, okay. So, but you, so you got it was like based that whole the universe, the peaches and cream world, the vibe of it. Oh it's, yeah, man. I mean that that's it's it's crazy because being you were so young writing songs that 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 the you know a lot of times the songs that you write now are mostly affecting people who are younger than you cuz most yeah. of your peers are still listening to the songs you wrote when you were younger yeah strange but enough. like so yeah. so you're writing music in real time the songs that are affecting an entire generation of normal people you know like <laughs> yeah. you know I was in, you know, I I was in LA and it was like every party you'd go to would be playing th- those kinds of songs cuz that was the same that's that's the eight, you're writing songs for your peers yeah. versus writing. Yeah. If I wrote songs for, for if we wrote songs for our peers now, it would be just not cool. But yeah. like, but when you write songs for your for who you are at that age, like mm. you were writing the songs. Did yeah, you realize yeah, was, that at the time? I didn't. No, I didn't. I never. I never really gave myself a lot of credit, and um, nobody really gave me, I always got publishing, thank God, but nobody ever really verbally gave me credit until Justin Bieber. Like, it took how many years? So I wrote my first hit in 96. So from 96, 2000, 2014, 2014 was the first time an artist mentioned my name, like, and just said, like, oh, Pooh Bear, I Puba did my record. Puba did my album. So it was a, it was a, it was a, uh, from, um, yeah, 96, 2006, 10 years. So yeah, roughly, basically almost like 14, 15, 16 years of nobody knowing really, um, my credits. And I was okay with it because I just wanted to buy my mom a house. I didn't care if anybody knew me. I was just blessed enough to be able to buy my mom house and to get my grandmother move us all out of a two-bedroom apartment it was eight of us and we, we you know so although I didn't, wasn't thinking about the credit I wasn't thinking about you know what I was doing I was just trying to survive and trying to get my I was just trying to take care of my mom and um I didn't even realize you know that nobody had really given me credit until I heard you know Usher on TRL talking about caught up and he was like 
I was in the LaFace office. I was in the Arista office in New York with one of the NRs, and he was just saying how what he was going through to write the record caught up. And and that's when it dawned on me. And I was like, oh, wow. He didn't really, I'm like, me and Ryan wrote this record caught up. And, but he's, you know, he had took it and was like, I understood that he had to make it be like, it came from him, but it was the first time that I was like, I felt a certain way about like somebody just taking, you know, everything and saying, oh, well, I was going through this when I wrote this. And I was like, wow. Man, that was the first time it affected me. That was probably 2004 when I started. I was like, wow, he really, they, and I was like, it would have just been cool for him to be like, you know, me and Pooh Bear and Ryan did this together. You know, we were, you know, like even to include us, you know what I mean? And I understand that the, these fans, they have to think that these songs come from the artists in order to have this connection with the artist and be like, oh, I relate to you, not to this big black guy. You know what I'm saying? So I understood that, you know, the game and the artist had to, you know, play that role. But it was a, that was the first time where I kind of felt something about it. And um, it took Justin Bieber to really, you know, on every interview he went on, every Ryan Seacrest, Ellen DeGen- everything he went on, he was like, Pooh Bear, Pooh Bear, Pooh Bear. And I was like, I felt uncomfortable because I was like, not used to it. So I'm like, Justin, you don't have to say my name. Like, you don't, people don't have to, you just tell them you did the records and I'm fine. He was like, no, I want every, I want the whole world to know who you are and how special you are to me. And it was just crazy. And then, um, I, and I appreciate Justin for that, for taking the, for being the first artist to ever mention my name in public, you know? That's amazing. I mean, I I know that one of the one of the issues that songwriters talk about a lot right now is you know this packed thing that's been going around. The idea of like artists, you know, who take credit on songs that they didn't write, and yeah. it's like you know, Confessions is obviously one of those very notorious examples of you know um, a lot of brilliant songwriters came together and sang songs and, and, and you had an artist at a level at the time that yeah. just started taking like massive amounts of publishing and credit on songs that they didn't write. Yeah. Um, you know. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That there's a difference between the songs that you had before, and obviously, like you had written hits before, but yeah. caught up's a whole other level, and Confessions is a whole other level. Yeah. Confessions is still like w- one of the highest selling albums of our lifetime. Of our lifetime, yeah. yeah like, not just, 
not just of the 2000s, literally of that decade, I bet it's in the top 10 albums sold at least. And just so massive. No, I would say, I would say it's number one in that decade. I would say from 2000, 2010, there, there's nothing that outsold us confessions. We did like 24 million units on that album. Yeah. And, and, and you wrote, you know, maybe the most famous single on the album. And I guess there's just a, there's sort of like a different responsibility. And I imagine the business just in general, I don't know if you had a publishing deal at the time, but my guess is that you were probably just, you know, you can't get more sought after than writing the biggest song on the biggest album of a decade. Oh, yeah. You know, I had, I got my, I waited. My cousin always told me like, wait till you have two hit records and then do a pub deal. So, you know, 16 was my first hit record. And my next hit, hit record was when I was like 20, 19, 20 um, with Peaches and Cream. And I went and I did a, you know, I had people trying to do a pub deal with me since I was 16. And I waited. I waited till I had two hits. And then I did my deal with Hitco um, when I was 20. And yeah, it was, it was, it was like, you know, it's crazy because the publishing deal that I signed, uh, once again, it was nowhere, um, nowhere near what I was supposed to get, you know, for what I had done. But just being, being black, you know, it's just the way that it turned out. But you know, for me, and I was in a deal that had a song commitment, which was like, you know, a song commitment deal is, you know, yeah. when you have to have. If I do a co-publishing deal and they want four songs to be released in one year. You don't know, but it's really impossible because you're not in control of releasing those records. You write, I could, I would write two, three hundred songs and on projects that would just be held up for, for whatever reason, like we're not putting out this record until next year. So I went, I was in a, I was, I did a pub deal when pub deals were, were un, were really designed for you not to be able to be successful. <laughs> it was like, we were doing this pub deal so we could take the publishing on these hit records and you'll never meet your commitment because it's not realistic. When I say four songs to come out in one year, I don't mean four co-writes. I don't mean four songs, that random songs. I mean four songs at 100% on a major label and not just any major label. In the contract, it specified it was four major labels. That, that So it was like, I didn't understand what I was signing. I didn't get it until... I, you know, I looked up through the years and I was actually meeting my commitments and, you know, they didn't expect me to do that. Nobody, they don't, nobody expects me to still be writing or be relevant right now at the 24, 24, that the average lifespan of a writer or producers, you know, two, two to three, two years, three years tops. And then, and then everybody goes on to the next writer or the next producer. It's just the way it goes. It's not even anything personal, but it's just the way it goes. So doing that pub deal, nobody, they didn't do pub deals for people to, to meet their commitments. They did them so they could take the copyrights on the songs and um, and then it leaves the writers and the producers to go out and really try to figure out a new way, you know, a whole new, probably a new career. I've seen so many writers and producers that from back when I was 16, 17, just come and go. So it's a blessing for me to be able to to go through this and go through these commitments, those deals that were humanly impossible to get out of. I, I was blessed enough to, 
to meet those commitments and do projects and, you know, and be able to have, write like 10, 12 songs and be able to do journals, you know, and, 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 you know, 12 out of those 15 songs. And it was really impossible and they know it, but um, I was blessed enough to get to a place where I could renegotiate my deal and, you know, where it made sense and no more commitments, just recoupment and um, got out of that deal and, you know, did the biggest admin deal, you know, one of, one of the biggest admin deals in, in music business history. Blessed is a super blessing. Amazing. Yeah. Do you feel like when you're talking to new writers now, do you say to hold out or do you feel like now the business has changed a little bit where people are being a little less, more aware? Yeah, yeah being, yeah, uh, not as uh, dirty as they used to be. I would, yeah, my advice to new writers is really like, get some leverage, man. Like, um, don't go into it, you know, just trying, you know, a lot of people really want to be famous and, and, and that inspires, that motivates a lot of, not just artists, but writers and producers, cause they want to be, they, they want a taste of the fame. So I would just say, you know, make sure you, you're writing records and you're getting into this because you love it genuinely <clears throat> and you have goals that you want to, you know, you, that you created and you have points that you want to prove, but, um, not jumping at it to just do the first publishing deal that you get offered, making sure, you know, that you have a, a hit record or a couple hit records that way and understanding what those hit records generate, how much money, you know, um, for your percentage, what does your, what do you stand on making over the next year and a half, two years, and the industry's so different now with streams, you know, granted they still don't pay us anything for streams, but it's just really different. So I would tell artists, I would tell a writer, like, wait till you have some leverage, you know, work with, you know, work with as many artists as you possibly can, write as many songs as you possibly can. Um, and at the same time, educate yourself so that you know when a, when a publishing deal comes to the table, know your worth, know your value, know what you know what you know if you have 25 percent on a radio hit record know what that earns in in in, in a year because they could tell you we'll give you you know 200 grand on this pub deal when really you know you got about 800 grand coming and when they do that co-pub now you don't have 800 grand coming now you got 400 grand coming they're going to recoup that 200,000 and make a profit of 400 they're going to split that 800 after you recoup if you know when you when you recoup and they know that you're going to recoup or they wouldn't give you the money they wouldn't give you the offer if they didn't know that there's money in the pipeline so i would just say to educate yourself before you do you jump into a pub deal um you know, look, and if you don't really need money per se, you know, think about doing an admin deal. You know, if I would have been educated, if I would have known what I know now, I would have never done a co-publishing agreement. I would have never done a co-publishing deal. Um, but I had to learn and, you know, through trial and error. But I would just say, just weigh, weigh it out. If you don't absolutely need money, the only reason why you would do a pub deal is to get money and to give you a loan. It's a, it's a loan. It's an advance with um, a very, very high interest rate, you know, 20 25%, you know, they're taking. And so I would just be educated, man, as a writer and a producer. Don't just come into it just wanting to be able to buy Rolls Royces and, and diamonds and just let the let the motive and, the you know, let the motivation come from a real genuine place and, and be educated 
and um and everything that you're getting into. It, the uh, the information's out there for us now. Yeah, I think if you're doing the deal for money, that's one thing. If you're doing the deal because a yeah. publisher, it, you need a team of people who can help you get in the room and do the things that like you you're so talented that the rooms kept coming to you because everyone I've never had a I had one publisher put me with one artist and it was um BMG um Shani put me with set up a lunch for me and Sam Smith. But now mind you, I had a posing deal since 2020, I mean since 2001, 2000. So I wrote Burning with Sam Smith what three two years ago? Three years ago. So 17 years. And only yeah. one artist did the publisher set up a meeting with. And it was great. It was cool because it worked out. But they don't really, that's not what they do. They're there yeah, for it's really not money. A, it's not a, it's certainly not a, a, it does not make sense to do a publishing deal if you have either a manager who does what a publisher does or you're the kind of writer who can yeah. do, you know, what you do, you know, um, both as an entrepreneur and just talent wise. And, you know, just to jump ahead, obviously like a bunch of, you worked with a lot of different artists and, you know, Ludacris and Chris Brown, all these like amazing people through a lot of the, you know, from confessions on. Yeah. But it really wasn't. A lot, a lot of Neo Soul, Glenn Lewis. Yeah. I guess, you know, did you start developing expectations when you said most writers have like two or three years of writing hits? Yeah. You know, what about those, the years between confessions, mm-hmm. even though you had like some, you had singles that did really well and certainly in, in genre specific, but they weren't necessarily pop hits. And, you know, the songs you had before that even Peaches and Cream crossed over to pop and you had stuff that were, that were hits that on a on a pop oh, side yeah. right but it almost took like 10 years of doing like the grind and writing all kinds of songs that like probably should have crossed over but they don't yeah. because of different reasons <laughs> streaming comes in mp3s do their thing and leave like all the whole industry shifted during that time abster Fire. yeah why did you not um like it is so hard to keep up the the two hundred songs a year pace. It's hard to do the sessions pace. Did you keep up that kind of you know that kind of energy the whole time? I stepped it up. I stepped it up. So knowing, I didn't know that there was a lifespan for writers or producers. Like when I was like in my twenty, I didn't know this until six years maybe six seven years ago somebody was like yo you're really going like you're going against all odds right now and i'm like really and like yeah the average lifespan is you know one to three years you know with somebody who has a hit record so i didn't know so you know once i figured that out i just knew that i needed to keep doing what i whatever i was doing to get me where i was i needed to do that times 10 so I went from writing 200 songs in a year to writing 600 songs a year. And that's, it, it seems like a lot, but when you break it down, it's not that, it's not that bad. It's, you know, you do, if I do an average of two songs a day for six days a week, that's 12 songs a week. It's 52 weeks, you know, 
when you do it and you break it down like that, it's not, and I'm in a, and you're in a zone. So I'm just creating. So I, instead of me like slowing down, when I found out those, those, those stats, I just was like, no, I got to keep doing whatever I did to get me to this point. And that was living in the studio, pushing myself, challenging myself, um, being brutally honest with myself, saying like, yo, this is, this sucks. This is garbage. So I could continue to grow and, um, and, and, and nurturing my relationships with, with the artists that I was blessed enough to build relationships with, which for me, I've never been a music industry guy. Like I've never been the guy that was like at all the industry events. I never had the relationships with the executives, with the presidents of the labels up until, up until like 2015 is like when I really, you know, after purpose is when I really started building relationships with, with CEOs and presidents, but I've never been that guy in the music industry. I've always just been somebody who's been blessed to write hit in the business, but I've never been in the business. So I just was blessed enough to build relations with the artists. And they're the ones that for me, the artist, the label can say everything, but if the artist wants, wants what they want, the artist gets what they want. And for me, it's like to have that trust of an artist and then, you know, for them to believe in me, it allowed me to, to grow and, um, and uh, to have new goals and new points to prove because I didn't want them to get, I didn't want to let anybody down. I never want to let anybody down. I don't want to let myself down. But, you know, I think because I went the artist route as far as building relationships with the artists, it allowed me to have some more longevity than just, you know, being plugged into the labels, you know, because the labels have musical chairs. They they change present. They change every year, every year and a half, two years, everybody <laughs> moves seats. So it's like, you think you're building a relationship with this president and next, you know, he goes over here and it's like, wait a minute. And then you're back and then you're out of the loop because everybody who you built your relationship with no longer is in a position of power. So my thing was, I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta have relations with the artists. They're the ones, you know, they, they're the ones that have to sing it. And, you know, for so many artists, I didn't, charge them i didn't go into it like looking thinking about money i I went into it like no you're you're i want to prove to you that i'm worthy of working with you that you're you know and doing that i missed out on a certain amount of money but i built relationships that you know have lasted forever that turned into me being able to take care of my family and and a lot of people so i think that you know, me not really ever being in the music industry for say, like it helped me and it helped me to, to stay, to keep my ear to the streets and help me to be not caught up in the hype. The music industry is so much hype, man. And you know, everybody's kissing your ass and everybody's like, oh, you're the greatest. And the next thing you know, nobody's your friend. The artist that you thought you, you know, you, you wrote hits for, they're onto the next writer and producer. So it's like, it's really no loyalty in the music business. So it's like knowing that I'm just always just blessed just to still be here and be relevant somewhat, you know, knowing that everybody's always up and on to the next up. What's next? Who's the next writer? Who's the next artist? Who? So, you know, it's just being able to, to be realistic with myself and, and prove points, man. I got to prove points. I had, I have to, 
just because I've done whatever I've done in the last 24, 25 years is great. I don't remember. I don't think about my past. Like outside of these interviews, I only think about the future or I'll go crazy. I can't, the people, I have people playing me songs like, you remember this song? And I'm like, no, you know, it's like, there's no way my mind will hold on to songs and be comfortable enough writing new songs when, you know, so I don't remember yesterday. I did. I cut four records last night. It's crazy, man. I mean, four songs last night. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you hear, like, just to go through some of the Justin Bieber stuff, because I feel like that's, for people who didn't know you before, they certainly knew you after the Justin Bieber stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah. when you hear Where Are You Now, it's yeah. sort of, it was the kind of song that like changed a lot of the music business. A lot of people were trying to <laughs> trying to write this song that had a weird time signature. It was all kinds of like Focus it was out. such a vibe. It was just you singing, you know, singing to a track and Justin one singing track. that one vocal track, no background, no stacks, no. Yeah, it was like that song for me. When some people, when people ask, "What's the biggest song? What's the most important song of my career?" I say, where are you now? Just because everybody counted, everybody turned their backs on Justin Bieber. You know, when the world, when the, you know, when they went on their, you know, let's, let's kill Justin Bieber movement with the, the media every day, it was negative. Like, Bieber does this. And it was good for their ratings. It was kind of like Donald Trump. It was like, they hated him, but they loved him because everybody's watching the news. I don't, I don't, nobody watches the news anymore now that he's not president anymore. So I look at it like, Bieber, you know, his, him going, growing up, being a teenager in the spotlight and them trying to cancel and them, and them can't, they canceled him out. Where You Now was a record that, that was his comeback song. So for me, after doing journals that was sabotaged, um, it ended up selling records, thank God. But I was like, you know, thinking this is it. Like, damn, I get to work with Bieber and journals comes out and they, and they sabotaged it. And I thought that was it. I was like, wow, of course, he wants to sing R&B. The pop artist, the biggest pop artist in the world wants to sing R&B. Great. You know, and I did that. And then um, 2014, Where You Now came about. And it was just a record that it was special. I didn't know how special it was. And um, Justin heard it and was like, and cut it immediately. And then um, Scooter sent it out and he sent it to Skrillex and Diplo. And they started their group called Jack U. When I heard what they, what I heard what Skrillex did to the beat, I was like, "Yo, this really comes out. This could, this could change music." And um, it came out, and it, and it, it, it stayed on the charts. Yo, it stayed on the Hot 100 for like 63 weeks, and um, it brought it was Bieber's comeback record, and you know that was it was a it was just for me. You know, being a part of, a, of of writing a song when it was almost as felt as good as writing a record for a new artist that the world loved. And it was like, whoa, they canceled Justin and then here's this one song and now he's back. And then it won his first Grammy. And then, you know, it was like, it was so many different cool things. So I say that Where You Now was like, for me, it was the, like, it's been one of my, not one of the most highest selling songs, but definitely the most significant song in my career. Yeah, I imagine even What Do You Mean probably sold more just because of the fact that it was like, a, you know, it's more of a song song. 
Yeah, um, and it was and it was a bad and it was like Justin's back now. Where you now is his comeback record? And the what do you mean it was like his official first single when people started to love him again. And, you know, so do you purposefully I, write songs that have I questions? I wasn't a fan of what do you mean. Sorry, say that again. I wasn't even a big fan of what do you mean? Like when I when I wrote that record and um I wrote it and I was like at that time I had already written 110 songs for that project, you know? And I was kind of at the I was kind of at my wits end cuz I was like, damn, I've written so many songs and then I would get a call like, "Yo, can you go through this and see if you hear anything?" And I'm like, so I kind of wrote that one out of from a um I just want to get this over with by like I wrote that in like it was like 25 minutes, 30 minutes, you know what I'm saying? Um, recorded it and left left the studio. I didn't want to waste studio time when I know how much it cost. So I went in the studio and I wrote this record really fast. Um, not thinking that anybody would like it, because I wasn't that much into it. And then left and get a call from Scooter and he was like, hey, that record you did, what do you mean? I was like, Yeah, it's cool. He was like, no, that's his, that's the first single. He was like, that's his first single. And I was like, no. <laughs> I said, no. I said, we have, I have, a, there's 110 other songs that I wrote. What do you mean it's not the first single? He was like, I'm telling you, Pooh Bear, every time I get that feeling in my stomach, I'm never wrong. What do you mean is the single? And uh, it came out and it was just Justin's first, uh, first Hot 100 number one. And um, it ended up selling like 50. I don't know, it was like 50 times platinum or something like that. Something crazy. But once again, that, that proved too that I don't really know. Nobody really knows. Nobody knew that Old Town Road was going to be a hit. Like, nobody could tell me that if he would have, Little Nas X would have shopped Old Town Road as an artist. Like, can you give me an um, a artist deal? Even a single deal. They would have laughed him out of every label in the world. So it's like that least that left me, you know what do you mean? Let me realize like I don't really know. All I can do is just use my formula, what works for me, and that's it. Cause the rest of it is a mystery. Like nobody can sit here and tell you, be like, yo, that that's gonna be a hit. Cause it's like, nah, you can't tell. There's so many variables. And then what do you mean I didn't think was a hit ended up being a big hit. So it's like at that point it was like, I'm just gonna write records and you know, I don't know. I'm just going to write songs and stick to my formula and, and, and continue to be brutally honest with myself. I mean, you become sort of, you, you're obviously Justin's, you know, most used collaborator. Like you guys have so much, it, no, so many of these hits together. end up becoming just together. You know, like he obviously brings you in the room whenever there's a feature or anything like that. Despacito yeah. is like a whole other level. That has to be the highest selling song you have, even when. Yeah, like 74, you know, 74 Main single soul right now. It's, the, um, it's like the the high, the second highest selling song of all time after Thrill. Thriller is number one. Yeah, and then I mean, it's stupid. I, I, yeah. We've we've talked about that song a lot because we've interviewed the rest of the writers on it at this point, uh, and it's just it's just nuts. I mean, you can't you 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 can't pick it again. You can't pick it and. Let's just let's just jump to the next one because we have a few and I just want to throw them out there. Um, I'm the one is is also massive. The DJ Khaled record. Yeah, we're about almost diamond with that record. Yep. I, I guess like, do you? 
after those 10 years of the expectations being like probably, you know, putting in 600 songs a year kind of work and not having like pop hits to the point where it's almost like you guys can't prevent a song from being a hit sort of what it feels like you know do you have do you i never heard anybody say it like that yeah that's cool (laughs) do you guys feel like it's does it just become easy Mm. well i can't say that it's easy it's um i just don't take it for granted and i don't take it lightly i don't ever get comfortable because like even this last project i didn't i didn't write one song on this justice album you know i i published peaches you know which went number one which was great you know but i just never i just i've 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 had the opportunity to work with a lot of artists justin by far is the most loyal artist i've never i didn't even understand that level of loyalty in the music industry I i didn't think it existed but um, but even on this Justice album, I'm like I said, like I'm not on this project. So not to say that we haven't, we aren't still right. We are, we don't have more music coming out because we do. We have lots of music coming out. But it, it's an example of never getting comfortable and never, even though you said it, like almost couldn't prevent us from having a hit. Here comes a project where you know I didn't write one song on there, and um, it definitely felt a certain way. But at the end of the day, it's like. I have to step outside of myself and look at what me and Justin have done. And I'm like, no, the producer, writer, even Quincy Jones, you know, he got a chance to work on what? Up Against the Wall and Thriller, I think, for for Michael. So for me, it's like to be able to say I wrote, you know, I wrote changes every song, wrote and produced changes the entire project. Um, Purpose, I did 16 out of the 18 songs. On journals, I did... 12 out of the 15 songs. So I couldn't, I could feel a certain way, like feel left out, but I'm like, nobody's been able to to do with me what I've done with an artist before. Like, like nobody can say, oh, I wrote three Michael Jackson albums, or I wrote three Justin Bieber albums, or I wrote three Beyonce albums, or I wrote like, so it's just a blessing, man. And I, I had to like step out of it and, and look at it, not being on justice as a writer, and just be like, wow, like it felt awkward just because of what I was used to, but it's a blessing. And it also lit a fire up under myself to remind myself, I can't get comfortable. I can't get complacent. Uh, all those things that most people get do, you know, they fall victim to. I just can't do it because I look up on justice. I'm not on the album. So um, as much as, you know, we've done you know, in reality, it's just been a really huge blessing to have done so much with Justin. And, you know, we have a you know, we have a lot of music coming out, but I just don't ever want to look at it like, you know, that or ever look at it from this area where it's like everything we do is a hit. I can't because I have to, I'll get my feelings hurt like that. So I'm always like the one that's like, you know, looking at it that half empty, you know, as opposed to half full. And it just saves me. It protects my feelings. And, yeah, um, well, here's here's some half fullness. You know, before changes, you still had I don't care. You still had ten thousand hours. Yeah, and yummy. You got a sure. bunch of Grammy nominated songs and performances and all these things on these records. You know, intentions is massive. It's like these are really big songs. Yeah, all yeah. the songs on change is like it's hard to look at it 
anything less than just massively successful. Thank you. Yeah, we we sold six, uh, like six million records on that album right now. And the crazy part is, is like they shut that. I don't know if you noticed it, but they gave me two singles off of changes. <laughs> yeah, yummy and intentions. Yeah, and um, then they shut me. Then they shut it down. So then they went to the pop album because they said pop sells more than R and B, and that was the movement. It was like JB six. R&B doesn't sell. I'm like, wait a minute. I was like, but we, Intentions is double platinum. Excuse me, Intentions is triple platinum. Yummy's double platinum. Forever went gold. Wasn't even a single. Um, but they still wanted to prove that pop sold more than R&B. And it was, it was a blessing. You know, at first I felt really shaded and left out of it. But then it was cool because it was like, here's a real example of real numbers. So we look at changes and we look at what we sold in the first week. We did 270 in the first week on changes on, to, on having two songs out. Then you go to Justice that just released six radio singles. Yeah. <laughs> six. <laughs> and they did 130,000 units the first week. Yeah. So what sells more? Yeah. And my thing is like, my thing is like, why break it up into genres when it's like pop is what's ever popular, hence the word pop, you know, it's, you know, so it's like if urban and R&B, you know, is popular right now, then, you know, when you try to put out a record that you, you feel like is bringing you back to this purpose era, which was pop was, was when music was in a whole another place. When we did purpose pop was pop pop was like, you know, when you looked at the top 10 charts, it was pop. It was predominantly, you know, white artists, you know, and everything kind of like slowly, you know, turned into this urban hip hop world where now you look at the top 10 and it's very different. The Hot 100 top 10 is very different than what it was in 2015. So it's just difficult for them to say pop sells more than R&B or, or, or urban music when it's like, no, whatever popular is going to sell more. And it was just a cool example just to see that, how they shut me down after two songs on Changes. And then here comes Justice with six songs. And the only number one on that album was what? What type of song? The one you... <laughs> the, the no, one it was... Put. No, forget me publishing it. Yeah. It was an R&B record called Peaches. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you put out six records out of the six songs. The only one that went number one in the Hot 100 was an R&B urban song. That doesn't say anything to anybody. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? It's like you put out all these big, massive videos, all these records, and the only one that went number one that's still performing is Peaches. So it's like, okay, does pop sell more than R&B? I don't know. Not right now. I don't know right now. I don't know. I think that whatever's popular sells is whatever's popular is pop. It's pop. That that was my point. And it was like, so you want to try to force and make this certain sounding record that you define as pop, but pop is whatever popular. <laughs> so it was like, it was just cool to be a part. It was, it was a cool experiment for me to be a part of, to write changes, see, because I'm a black, and I, you know, I'm a black person. So it's like, they're not going to, I knew they weren't really going to push it the way that I wanted it because I, it would reflect on me and they don't mm. want it to reflect on me. They don't want that. 
you know, so it was just a great example of like, okay, good guys. Let's look at the numbers. And I know how much you pay. And I know how much people pay for numbers. I know how much people pay for slots. I know how much people pay for place, you know, for sliding on, on the charts. I know all of that stuff. So it was like, everybody can pay for things to make it appear to seem as one was bigger than the next. But when you look at the first week sales, yeah, we had a hundred, we were, you know, 120,000 more units sold than, than, than the album. And Justice is an amazing album. Like I, I, I think Justice is a great project. It's just interesting how they shut changes down after two singles. <laughs> and then he got, then here comes six singles after that. Still Crazy. a pandemic. Nothing's changed. Yeah. Can't use that excuse. Let's let's go to um, your project. I know you've released music in the past, but I just want to talk about, um, you know, our last segment is a five for five. And uh, But before we get to that, I just want to, I just wanted you to talk about The Day You Left, which is, you, you know, the first single you've put out in a long time as an artist. And, and um, this obviously means a lot to you. So um, I want you to talk about that for a minute. Um, the Day You Left, it, a record written by myself and Nabil Zaid, um, a poet, um, was an, intentionally was a, it was really a record that was, you know, the poem was done based on a relationship, past relationship. I read it and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. Um, wrote a new, wrote a whole, wrote a chorus and and put melodies and, and turned the poem into an actual song. And then it was just like the timing of it. Um, my mom passed away on January 7th. So when she passed away, I just remember sitting um, before the funeral and thinking like, well, the day you left has a whole new purpose now. It's definitely, don't think, when I hear the record, I didn't think about a breakup or a relationship. I just thought about my mom and the day she left and it being like this bittersweet feeling because I was being selfish, not wanting her to leave and me trying to extend her life by any means. And then her being happy and in a better place. I mean, she was in pain. So it was like, these words started taking on this whole new meaning and the day you left just turned into a, um, you know, something for my mom. It was a memory of my mom. And I just couldn't unhear every time I heard the song, I couldn't unhear, you know, my mom, I couldn't unsee it. So, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the record extremely. I worked on it with Sasha, um, Sonny Skrillex worked on it. Um, and I'm just, I'm just proud to, to, to put out this music especially for my mom and and just to have new music out into the marketplace. You know, I, I always, like, I put out songs, but I'm, I'm really, really at a point where, you know, I went through an evolution with my weight loss and doing all these things to, you know, be the best version of myself. And I'm really just excited to put out new music and, and push it harder than I've ever pushed anything else in anything else that I've released as an artist. And, um, I'm just excited to see what the response is. I really value opinions. I really value what the consumer thinks. Um, way less than what I value what people in the music industry think. <laughs> I, one, I don't think you need to to judge it on consumer on the what consumers say because it's because I think that you can only control so much of that and. I hope that they hear the honesty, I think, in your vocals in it and, like, the vulnerability in it. And so, you know, 
regardless of what they say, the performance is honest and you should be proud of that. Um, Thank you. You you know, you mentioned the weight loss. I wasn't going to say anything, but, you know, you've lost a lot of weight and and I don't know if people are going to be able to see you or not, but um, how did you do it? (laughs) How did you lose all the weight? Uh, Just diet, diet and working out. Man, I hired a trainer about three years ago and, um, you know, I stopped eating meat like 12 years ago, I started slowly. For me, this has been like a really slow transformation. It wasn't one of those, I, I didn't get, you know, the lap band or my stomach cut in half or anything like that. I just slowly, I changed my diet, cut sugar, carbs out, cut red meat out, cut chicken out. And then um, I went raw, I went raw for like a year, like raw for about a year. Where I didn't eat anything cooked, any bed, like just dehydrated veggies and crazy diet. And then um, I started realizing um, that, you know, those people who got lap bands, the surgeries, how it was, why it was working. It was, you know, cause they weren't able to eat as much, you know, they would cut, you know, put the lap band on their, their stomach and they, their appetite would be cut in half just because they wouldn't, they couldn't physically consume that much food. So what I started doing was trying to start treating myself like I had the lap band and I just started cutting like half my, cutting all my food in the half. You know, so, and I was, it was no carb, no pro, no only protein and veggies. So I would have, I had, you know, salmon, so I'd include some, you know, some, some fish, some, some healthy fish. I would cut salmon, cut my salmon in half and turn it from an eight ounce piece to a, a four ounce, four ounce portion. Eat that, make sure that when I got finished eating that I was still hungry. That's the key. Like we're, as a kid growing up hungry and poor, we're, we're just taught to survive and be full. So once you realize that, we're never really supposed to feel full, you know, um, that changed my life and stopped eating for pleasure and eating for nourishment and, um, and then working out every single day, training two hours a day. You know, I never did pushups. I never did anything. I skipped, I was the kid, I was the guy that didn't want to do PE, you know? So having a trainer and, and making, working out a lifestyle and not something that I was forced to do, but I felt bad if I didn't do it. Um, it just changed my life. And um, and then I made it to a place where I just had this skin because you no matter if I did 700 crunches in a day, I couldn't crunch the skin away from my stomach from me losing weight. It's just like material. So that's where I had to go. And I got, you know, surgery, you know, where all this, all the skin from me losing weight, you see this was like cut all the way. They had to remove all that skin. Same thing over here. And um, from there, you know, now... You know, I think all in all, I lost about 190 pounds. Damn. It was like an adult. I lost, you probably weigh, what, 160 or something? No, I'm I, pretty I close. I'm, I'm, that's, you basically lost to me for sure. I lost you. Yeah. I lost you. Like, I mean, yeah. dude, of all the things you've accomplished in your, you know, in the last two decades, that's life changing and that will prolong your life in so many ways and and all the success that you have is is great as any musician because we all need that but uh um it, we all want that you need to be healthy and i applaud you on that Thank um you. let's Thank do you. a quick the last segment is five for five i'm just gonna list five things and tell me the first thing that comes off the top of your head first one 112 um, the first thing that comes in my head is uh, peaches and cream. Ah, oh, it's so good. Oh, that song is so good. Uh, Usher. Usher. Oh man. 
I will have to say, I just have to say caught up. Hmm. I just have to say caught up just because it's just like, I feel like that record, it just survived the test of time. We cut that record in 2002. <laughs> so it came, it survived two years. And, you know, and then it was the last single, the fifth single off of the album. So I just feel like it, it stood the test of time. And, you know, even him not being in a relationship with Chili anymore, that song was about Chili. They broke up halfway through the album. So it was like the fact that it, it stayed. So when I think of Usher, I, do, I think of Caught Up for myself. Let's go with Dre and Vidal. Ooh, Dre and Vidal, Neo Soul. Neo Soul, I would say when I think of Dre and Vidal, I think of Neo Soul. They, you know, Neo Soul didn't exist before Dre and Vidal. And that whole, you know, uh, Jazzy Jeff camp, you know, Carl, and there's a couple other amazingly talented musicians. Well, and then you get all the artists of Flowetry, Jill Scott, oh, all the like. Flo-tree, Jill Scott, Butterfly, Michael Jackson, Butterflies. I mean, Glenn Lewis, you know, don't you forget it. Like, these were records that, you know, were played a major part of people's soundtracks of their lives. Yeah. And I say, neat, when I think of Dran Vidal, I think of they're the ones that created the sound, Neo Soul. I don't think. I don't recall it, you know, existing before 2000, before, you know, Jill and they Scott. Were kids. Who is Jill Scott, you know? Dude, they were kids. They, they were, were kids, as, yeah. They were kids. They were just, anyway. Uh, let's go yeah. to the next one because we could talk about Dre and Vidal forever. Um, Justin Bieber. Oh, man, when I think about Bieber, definitely it is where are you now? I just because, you know, that song, it was just really special. I had to, I don't know if you had heard the Trojan Trojan Horse, um, you know, the, the Trojan Horse Theory. Yeah. That record was, was I used the Trojan Horse Theory for that song. And uh, um, basically, short, um, long story short, I had, um, I was at odds with, with Scooter, with Justin's manager, because it was just weird. Me and Justin built this relationship and it, I guess it was just uh, some type of a threat there. And um, so when it got to where you now, I knew, you know, journals, they shut it down and they they kind of, they shut it down. And I get it. When it got to where you now, I was like, I want to try a secret and experiment because I know I wasn't liked. I know people didn't like me um, in Justin's camp. Um, so I told Justin, I was like, don't tell anybody I wrote this, that, that I wrote this song. So um, once it... Uh, so when it came out and it was starting to be successful was when I reached out to Scooter. I was like, hey, how's that? Well, how's Where Are You Now doing? He was like, it's, it's, his, it's, his, it's his comeback record. And I was like, cool. He was like, but you didn't write that one. And I was like, no. Nah. I was like, we, I wrote it. We wrote it together. He was like, oh, Justin didn't tell me he wrote that. I was like, he probably forgot. But it was the Trojan horse. Like I snuck that. Like I think if he would have known that I wrote that record, I'm not sure if that record would have existed. I don't think it would have came out. So yeah, I love, that was my, that was my is, Trojan horse theory for that dude, that's, one. <laughs> that's the music industry at its best right there. At, at its best. At its yeah. best. That's, a, that's the music industry at its best right there. Yeah. Um, finally, your mom. My mom. Yeah, the day you left, um, my mom, man, my everything. She supported me. My whole reason of me writing songs and me 
you know, being in the groups when I was 11 or 12 was for my mom. It was, I wanted to be able to, I wanted her to, to live comfortable. I wanted her to, to have a house. I wanted her to have a new car, Benz, and everything, you know, um, was re- revolving around my, my mom. And she was my, my inspiration, my everything. And um, the day you left, that record for me, you know, like I said, it's just one of those bittersweet records because I know she is well off. I know she's in a better a better place. As much as people say that, I know my mom is no longer just laying in a hospital bed in pain every day. And um, I feel like, you know, the day you left is is a great representation of of words that that um that my feelings towards my mom and you know, specifically in the hook when you when you listen to it. It's my mom verbatim. And so I would say the day you left when I think of my mom and January 7th. Yeah, man. Um, Thank you for doing the podcast. I I, I told you before we started, but it was 2009. It was Father's Day. My, I get a phone call. I had started working with Dre and Vidal because they liked my band and we had some friends in common and they brought me in to to go and write write a bunch of songs with them and it was a Chris Brown session they said do you want to come out and I was like yeah of course but I'm in Chicago and I took the first flight out and um and I was in the studio and I didn't know what I was doing with Chris Brown and Dre and Vidal at the time you know it was like it was really cool to be in that room but I didn't know anybody there and there was one se- one session we did like you know all of us were writing like six songs in a night kind of thing and they put me in a session with you and I remember you we wrote a song it was called In the Paint and I don't remember anything about names of songs but I remember seeing how effortless it was and how hard I felt like I was trying to write a song and it just felt like it was so easy for you and it was just a it was an amazing moment to watch that cuz you're so talented. Thank you. And after the Bieber situation, you know, 10 whatever it is, 16 years later, no, 6 years later, I'm, you know, at that point I've now had my own hits and yeah. and I see I see you go you know, I think thought of you as like the guy that Dre and Vidal put me in for one of the six songs or something like that. Yeah. And then to see you have a slew of hits was just such like such an amazing experience. Oh, thank you, man. Because it didn't mean it, you I'm sure didn't remember that exchange, but I remembered everything because that was one of those few sessions I had had working not being in a band anymore and now being a professional writer and to be in a room with somebody who is so pro pro and be like, oh wow, I have something to work towards. And so it was uh, you had more of an impact on my career than you realize. And I just wanted to say thank you for that and thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you. Thanks thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a, um an honor. And that that makes me, that warms my heart to know that um, I had any effect on you. And I'm sure we had a great session. (laughs) I have no idea how the song goes. man. (laughs) Um, I do remember, though. I do remember vaguely, though. Like, I I do remember you. Your your face looks like, I feel like I know you already. So that's, (laughs) you know, that has a lot to do with it. Um, I love it. And thank thank you for having me on this podcast. Um, It's a a blessing to be able to, to talk to you, especially with you 
being a, a songwriter and, and having, you know, the success that you've had. Just thank you for even doing this podcast. You know, so I think it's it's great. And I think that um, it's just going to get better and better. You know, so congrats on the podcast. Thanks, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.